You hear me? There we go. Good morning. Good to see everybody today. This morning we are going to look at the gospel according to Second Chronicles. So if you brought your Bibles with you, which I hope you did, um, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 5. <clears throat> because of the worried state that our nation is in right now, I think we could use some, some good news this morning. I tell you what, I'm so sick of hearing about political campaigns, terrorism, and immigration, and clowns. <laughs> it's got to be ironic that the biggest news of the week has been the political circus going on and creepy clowns. Something to that. So uh, I, I, th- I think we could use some good news this morning, so that's what we're going to get. Second um, Chronicles chapter 5, uh, just kind of set up what's going on here. God had given King David the, uh, the vision to build a magnificent temple, a permanent place where the manifest presence of God would reside on earth, a place where the people could come and meet with and worship the living God. And although David was given the vision for it, it would be his son Solomon that would actually see it built. And so here in Second Chronicles chapter 5, it has finally been completed and everyone has come together for the grand opening. There was a big celebration as the last piece was put into place and the Ark of the Covenant was brought up and placed inside the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies. That is where God's presence would be. So there's this big celebration going on that we're going to join in verse 11. So let's all stand together and look at 2 Chronicles 5 beginning in verse 11. It says, when the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Hammon, Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify God. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand a minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you that, Lord, the news about you and what you have done is good, and it is life-changing, and it does change everything. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us this morning. God, I pray that your truth would come rushing in like a cloud the way it did in what we just read here. That we may leave here knowing you more, Jesus, more in love with you. That you may be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> it's been a while since we've uh, looked at an Old Testament story in light of the gospel. And I was reading this text here recently, 
A story that I've read many times before, but as usually happens with anything in the Bible, something jumped out at me that I hadn't noticed before. Before I get into this, I want to say a few things about reading the Old Testament or reading anything in the Bible, really, because there have been many of you that have started attending here since we've last done this. But it's important to know that every bit of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. The gospel is the thread that runs through the entire thing, from the first verse of Genesis to the last verse of Revelation. It is all saturated with gospel truth. Everything in the Old Testament was looking forward to and pointing to what God would do through Jesus. And everything in the New Testament is looking back on what God has done through Jesus now that everything has changed. And so if everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus, then we have to conclude this. The first point for those of you that are following along there in your notes. And that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I'm not talking about just the specific prophecies that we know were uh, about him. I'm talking about all of it. He fulfills all of the Old Testament. What does that mean? Well, the next thing there, he is what history has always been about and what history had always been waiting for. That's what Jesus meant with his first words that were recorded in the book of Mark when he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He was saying, I am what history has always been waiting on. I am what it has always been about. And so history only makes sense in light of how it relates to Jesus. So then whenever we read something in the Old Testament, we've got to keep that in mind. Because if you read anything in the Bible apart from how it relates to Jesus, you are going to completely miss the point that God is trying to make in that. You won't be able to interpret it correctly, nor will you be able to apply it to your life the way that God wants us to. So let's see how that's done with this text here that we just read. Of course, this story records an incredible event that happened. This was a powerful encounter with God that these people had. How many of you would say that you would like to have an encounter with God like that? I'm sure pretty much all of us would. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we gather here together on Sunday mornings. We want to come and have a powerful encounter with the living God. And so a popular way to interpret this story is to see it as a way for us to be able to do that. To see it as an example of, uh, that we can follow on how to have a powerful encounter with God. Because, you know, we just love formulas and plans. And so I think a lot of times we read the Bible looking for those things. Looking for a formula or a plan that we can follow. We want to know what can I do in order to get God to do whatever it is we want him to do. What can I do to get God to bless me? What can I do in order to get uh, God's presence to fall here, in order for me to have an encounter with him like 
these people did. And so it can be very easy for us to read this story that way. We tend to look at something like this and go, well, this is what the people did that resulted in this powerful encounter with God. So if we just do these things, then we should expect that same result. And so we'll interpret this to mean that if we just gather enough people together and play our instruments loud enough and raise our voices high enough, then we should expect the presence of God to fill this building the same way that it did there. And I can't tell you how many church services I've been in that have tried to copy this. And have used this very text as an example and used it to try to work the people up into this emotional frenzy trying as hard as they can for this kind of encounter to happen where the presence of God falls and just fills the place. But there are two problems with reading the text like that. Number one, by doing that, we are putting ourselves at the center of the story. We're looking at this going, how can I have an encounter with God? And you've heard me say many times now that we are not the center of the story. Jesus is the center of the story. Every story that we read in the Bible, he is the center of and not us. But our natural tendency, our default nature is to make everything in life about us. And that spills over into the way that we read the Bible. Something we read in here, by golly, we're going to make it about us because that's what life's about, right? Wrong. And when we do that, we completely miss what God's trying to show us. The second problem with reading it this way is that that tells us absolutely nothing about Jesus. By taking this story as a plan, a formula, an example on how we can have an encounter with God, we learn not one new thing at all about Jesus. And that is the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to know Jesus more. And so we should read the Bible with that goal in mind. I've told you before that whenever you read something in the Bible, there are three questions that you need to try to answer. Number one is, what does this tell me about Jesus? Number two, what do I need to repent of? And number three, what do I need to believe? If you can answer those three questions with any text that you read in the Bible, then you're approaching it the right way and getting what God wants you to see in that. Okay, so everything in the Old Testament is about what was to come in Jesus. And so the next thing, next point in your notes, everything in the Old Testament was ultimately about something more, something better that was to come. And so that means that this incredibly powerful encounter with God here was ultimately about something better, something better than what these people experienced. And so if that's the case, then it would be kind of silly to try to recreate this, wouldn't it? I mean, why go for the lesser thing when it's actually trying to point us to something better? There are some 
main elements that are contained in this story. First of all, one of the main things is the temple. I mean, that is where all this has taken place. The temple building is the setting. And so taking everything I said into account, the temple here really wasn't about this big, beautiful structure. It was about something more, something better. I've talked in other sermons before about how throughout history there are three primary ways that the manifest presence of God resided on earth. First, it was in the temple, and then it was in the person of Jesus, and today it is in me and you, the church. When Jesus said to the Pharisees, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again, it says he was referring to the temple of his body. Because that is where the presence of God resided on earth at that time. And then after Jesus rose from the dead and sent his spirit into those who believe, Paul says three times in 1 Corinthians, you are the temple of God. Because the spirit of God now dwells in you. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 19, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. And so when we read this in 2 Chronicles 5, we have to read it in light of the fact that ultimately this is not about a physical structure made with human hands. It's not even about a physical structure today. And a lot of times we'll read this and we'll try to we'll want to put our church building in place of the temple in order to try to have this same experience. But this is not about a physical building. This is ultimately about the temple of our bodies. And so with that in mind, look at the last part of verse 13 and 14 again. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Folks, this is ultimately about what happened to you at the moment of salvation. Next point, the temple dedication is a picture of salvation. It's not about how to have an encounter with God the way these folks did. It is realizing that something more, something better has happened to you. Something so big and so incredible that what happened here is just a lesser shadow of it. Again, why go for the shadow when you've been given the substance? It would be like having a lifetime free pass to the biggest and most exciting rides at Six Flags. But then you're going, nah, I'd rather just pay to ride all the kiddie rides. Really? Something better has been provided for you. Why settle for the lesser thing? Jesus is your incredibly 
powerful encounter with God. But you know what's really sad? I know there are many people, even some of you out there here in this place today, that will hear me say that and go, really? Well, I still want that kind of encounter that they had. And the reason is, because that means that we really don't get what happened to us in Jesus. I mean, we don't really understand what our salvation means. Because if we really knew how good and powerful and incredible our encounter with Jesus is, then what happened here in Second Chronicles 5 really wouldn't seem near as exciting. It wouldn't. But it's not surprising at all that we long for these other encounters that seem so powerful. And most of us would probably even say, well, I'm saved, but I've never had an encounter with God like that. It doesn't surprise me at all because the gospel that many of us have bought into and uh, are accustomed to today isn't very incredible or powerful at all. It has been reduced to something that looks a whole lot more like what I talked about earlier, a plan. It's been presented to us like instructions on a medicine bottle. Just follow the plan, swallow the pill, and the results will be good. You can get the benefits of heaven without having an encounter with the Savior or a relationship with him. And so many attempts have been made to make the gospel more acceptable to more people and more relevant to contemporary culture. And by doing so, we have watered it down to something that we may be able to relate to, but nothing that excites us in the least bit and definitely doesn't change anyone. And these watered-down versions always have a common theme. There is something for you to do in order to get the benefits. It may be join a church, get baptized, make a covenant with others, eliminate bad behavior, memorize scripture, have daily quiet times, practice certain spiritual disciplines, etc. If you will do this, then God will issue you the certificate of salvation. And all those things may be involved in living out your relationship with God, but none of them qualify a person for salvation. And I would say none of them even qualify a person for getting anything extra from God. I mean, it's like we think that God's up there going, oh, man, that is so impressive. You really impress me with your effort here. I'm going to throw some extra blessing to you. That is not how it works, folks. And if we look deeper into this story in 2 Chronicles in light of what Jesus has done already and him being the fulfillment of this, then we'll discover why. The great thing about reading the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel is that it enables us to discover things about what it means for us to be in Christ now. There are nuggets of gospel treasure that we get to find, and when we do, we just grow more and more in love with Jesus. 
What specifically jumped out at me when I read this recently was the first part of verse 14, where it says that the presence of God filled the place so strong that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. In the very next chapter, Solomon leads the people in this long prayer. And then look what happened at the end of his prayer, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And so twice now, during this dedication ceremony, the presence of God filled the place so powerfully that the priests weren't able to do what they were supposed to do. And so if this story is a picture of salvation, then that means something then that tells us something about what it means to be in Christ now. What did the priests represent here? Well, let's look at what their roles were back then. First of all, in order to be a priest, you had to meet very strict requirements. Anyone serving as a temple priest, first of all, had to be from the tribe of Aaron. And so the first thing in your notes you can write down is that they were a very exclusive group. Was not just anyone could be a priest. I mean, you had to be born into the right family first to be even considered to be one. And one of their responsibilities was to make sure everything in the temple was precisely in order the way it was supposed to be. Different groups of priests were responsible for certain areas, certain sections of the temple. And they had to make sure that their section met all the specifications that God uh, instructed for them. There were utensils that had to be cleaned a certain way. There were decorations that had to be hung a certain way. All these specific rules and requirements that had to be followed to a T in order to meet God's standards for the way that he deserved to be worshipped. And so the next thing about the priest is that they made sure all the requirements were met. Next, they were the overseers of all the rituals. They oversaw all the, the things that the people had to do. They, they received the animal sacrifices and stood there to make sure that the sacrifices were done correctly, that nobody was bringing any sick or lame animals up there, that they were the perfect ones that God required. And so they, they uh, oversaw all these rituals that were going on to make sure they were done just right. And so the next thing you could say is that they were the rule or law enforcers. And then next, they served as the conduit of God's blessing to the people. If anyone wanted a blessing from God, they had to go to the priest to get it. The priest would pray certain prayers of blessing over the people, and they were the ones that could only declare whether or not someone's sins had been forgiven based on how they performed the sacrifice. If they followed all the rules just right, then the priest would declare that their sins were forgiven. And then lastly, they were viewed as being the most zealous for the honor of God. 
And so they were put on a very high pedestal in the eyes of the people. They were the, quote, men of God, assumed to be closer to God than than anyone else because they were the priests. And because they had the most zeal for God, that had to mean that they were closer to God, they were more blessed by God, and they had more favor with God than anybody else. They had access to the things of God that just not anyone could have. And so here's what... The priest symbolized in the story. The next point. The priests in the story represent religion. And I mean that in the negative sense. Religion can be defined as attempting to gain leverage with God through good behavior. It's the, if I do this, then God will do this mentality. The priest... And they were exclusive. They made sure all the requirements were met and everything was in order and the rules were followed and the blessings were earned and deserved. And so what they also represent is the exact way that many people view what it means to be a Christian today. And this is why we don't get very excited about it. And we long for these seemingly more powerful experiences We tend to think that being a Christian and having God's favor, receiving any blessing from him, man, that's just reserved for an exclusive group of, quote, godly people who have it all together. So many of us live under this weight of this expectation that we've got to meet certain requirements and standards, and if we don't, then we are less than and a failure. We've got to make sure everything in our life is in order exactly the way that we think that it's supposed to be, that God's expecting us to have it. And then we try to conjure up as much zeal for God as we think it's going to take in order to make him happy. So many people just don't believe that they have as much access to the things of God as these more spiritually looking and acting people do. And so They've got to go look for some conduit to receive God's blessing. Maybe this pastor or this godly person here, will God will hear their prayers more than he'll hear mine. And so I've got to have them pray for me. I've got to have them speak or pray a blessing over me because I'm not worthy because I don't have it all in order and I can't meet all the requirements You know what that kind of life produces? Shame. Total shame. So many of us are so full of shame, we can't be real with anyone. Because since we know we don't have it all together, and that we fall short all the time, we've got to pretend, make it look like we do have it all together. Shameful people are fearful people. And one fear just gives birth to another. Man, if we could just make the shame go away. If we could just have a big enough encounter with God where his presence would come in like a cloud and cover our shame up enough to where we don't have to look at it or think about it at least just for a moment... Oh, I want to have one of those kinds of encounters. 
temple in the story represents us, our body, our heart. The tomb that housed our dead spirit apart from Christ. The presence of God coming in like a thick cloud is the moment that you turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Listen to verse 14 again in light of what the priests symbolize. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. So that access to and the blessings and favor of God would no longer be limited to just an exclusive group. So that the stress of always having to make sure that everything in life was precisely in order was no longer needed. So that trying to meet the requirements and the standards was no longer an issue. So that sacrifices were no longer be required. So that there could be no more need for a conduit for the people, but they could go directly to the source themselves. Verse 2 of chapter 7, the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Religion and merit-based effort could not enter into you because the glory of the Lord has filled your heart. It's no longer about what you have to do for God. It is now all about what God has done for you. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements. He met all the standards. He was the final sacrifice. Shame could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. You know where shame comes from? I mean, the root birthing point of shame, it's the next point in your notes, shame comes from failure. When we think we have failed, that's when shame attaches itself to us. It's failure to meet certain expectations, failure to achieve certain standards, fulfill certain requirements. But here's the good news, folks. The last point in your notes. Jesus removes shame because he met all of that on your behalf. Because he did it all, there are no more requirements for you to fulfill. There are no more standards for you to achieve. There are no more sacrifices for you to to make. All the credit that Jesus gets for doing all that is now credit that goes to those who simply believe in him. I know that is just too simple for some of you to actually believe. You go, no, it can't be that simple. I mean, I get the credit for meeting all that just for believing that Jesus did it. Yes, it is really that simple. There are no hoops that you've got to jump through. There is nothing you have to do to try to prove to God how serious you are or how much you actually deserve any of that. It is finished. Jesus did it all. And so if you carry shame, it's only because you've still got to be trying to do the things that Jesus has already done. Folks, there's no way for you to be a failure in God's eyes when it comes to your standing with him because there's nothing left for you to fail at. Jesus took care of it. He wants you to let go of that and just receive what he's done for you.
Just thank him for it. And finally, those three questions I mentioned. What does this tell me about Jesus? It tells me that when he filled me, he did away with all religion and legalism and merit-based effort. It tells me that Jesus did it all. And there's nothing left for me to do when it comes to receiving anything from God. What do I need to repent of? I need to repent of still trying to do what Jesus has already done. I need to repent of trying to do Jesus' job. Some of you just need to repent of believing that you can get more from God if you would just do more for God. Did you hear me? I don't know if you did. Some of you need to repent of believing that you can get more from God if you would just do more for God. You have been given all that you can ever imagine because of what Jesus has done for you. And if you're still trying to get more, it's because you don't really realize what you have now. Quit trying so hard to get from God what has already been provided for you in Jesus. And then the last question, what do I need to believe? And that's very important because what we believe completely affects how we live. What we do on the outside is a reflection of what we believe in here. I need to believe that what Jesus did for me really was enough. That it was enough. I need to believe that God isn't looking at me as a disappointment because I can't live up to his standards. I need to believe that I'm credited as having met those standards simply because I believe that Jesus met them for me. Because of that, I need to believe that, man, that God delights in me the way that he delights in his son. That's a hard one for us to wrap our minds around right there. That God delights in you the way that he delights in his son. And it's not based on anything that you've done. It's not because you earned it. It's not because you deserved it. Simply because he is good. He's a good father who earned it for you. Now, i got to address the fact that some of you have got to be thinking, boy, Jason, that really sounds good, but won't people just take that as an excuse not to do anything? I mean, won't that kind of message produce lazy Christians and essentially just give people a license to sin? If you understand everything I just said about what your salvation really means, and if you truly believe that Jesus did everything for you and then gifted you, just gave to you the credit that he himself earned, I'm telling you, the last thing you'll want to do is anything that taints that glorious truth. I mean, that is just too precious. 
to defile with a lazy and rebellious attitude. I don't know about you, but knowing what Jesus has done for me just motivates me all the more to want to live my life as a thank you to him. And it is incredible to me that he would do that. I know I don't deserve it. But I want my life to at least honor him for what he has done. Folks, I'm telling you, the news really is as good as it sounds. And it's okay to believe it. And if you do, you just might get excited about being a Christian again. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that the news is not something that you explain to us. It is simply something that you announce. You announced that the time history had been waiting on had come. The king is here. You announced that our sins have been forgiven. Our guilt has been washed away. You announced the fact that everything that we have tried to do to gain anything with you has now been done for us. You announced that we are made sons and daughters of the Father. Not based on any merit gained on our own, but simply because you are good and merciful and gracious and you deserve the glory so God I pray for those this morning who really needed to hear this announcement this morning that have still living under the weight of shame of trying so hard to live up to certain expectations that you they think that you are holding over their head God, they would just be able to lay that down at your feet and rest in the finished work of the cross. Lord, let us know the true meaning of it is finished. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive this truth. That when we walk out of here, we'll be more in love with you. And our lives will reflect what you have done. Who you have made us. God, to you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.